teaching series because when you go through a whole book of the Bible, I'm not really big on just kind of doing this flyover. So we've been going verse, not quite verse by verse, but, but meaningful section by section. Uh, and we've been going since January, we've been going through the book of Philippians. This is a letter written by a guy named Paul in prison to a new church, which is a colony of Rome. That should catch everybody up on every sermon I've given for the last four months. Um, but what we're doing today and what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is parking on Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8 was the verse that I had to like work up the will when I was in high school to like, uh, this is like the way I would like give my testimony, right, in high school when we were signing yearbooks, right? You'd put a little note and as if I was like already like, I don't know, some like rock star or something, I would just write my name and then I would write PHL48. Right, this is my verse. This is the way in which I felt like, oh, maybe, maybe somebody will look it up and then come to Jesus. Um, I don't know if that ever happened. Uh, but I mention that because this is the verse that for whatever reason, uh, in high school, when I went through college, I had a number of like intense intellectual doubts in the season of college. And there's a number of reasons why I think my, my mind was led back to this passage over and over and over again. And so I've been looking forward uh, in the calendar to this section. Because uh, there's just a list of things in the text. Uh, the, the verse goes, uh, depending on your translation, uh, it'll say, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Finally, church, if it's true, Think about it. That's it. Like if it's true, think about it. So we're going to actually spend some time today talking about that. And then, and then we're going to move at snail's pace. Like whatever is honorable, like think about that. This might not sound very riveting to you, but what I want to unpack a little bit for uh, us this morning is how the things that are going on inside your head, your thought life, uh, is unbelievably important. And as Mark Twain has this great quote about sort of the amount of time we spend in our head versus the amount of time we spent kind of lived out in the flesh. He says this, what a wee little part of a per I wish I spoke like that. What a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long, the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts not those other things are his history. And I would modify Twain's words a little bit by saying that our thought life forms the basis for and is largely revealed in our actions and words. But Twain's comments are, are correct in affirming that our thought life composes a major part of who we really are. I've been accused multiple times in my life of being a space cadet. Anybody else? Like just... Like, I've always wondered what biologically goes on when you zone out because something is wrong with me. I just have moments where I'm like, like, I've had them in sermons almost as I'm like talking. I'm like, I find my brain just like something's happening. I'm drifting into the confines of my, of like my, the back of my head. Thinking and, and, and what's actually happening in your life is somebody who, um, and this is always surprising for people, I actually score on Myers-Briggs as like an introvert. I come up as an introvert pretty regularly. It's because that's how I refill is just being still. 
So for all the introverts in the room, the idea of like recognizing that so much of your life is lived out in your head, you get this. Not that it's not true for extroverts, but introverts in particular are like, oh yeah, we have like parties in there. Like all sorts of stuff is going on all the time. Uh, and, and that is so much of our lived life. We think of that as like, some of us think of that as wasted time. And, and yet this is some of the most brilliant things right in the world have come from people who have actually sat and, and, and thought deeply about things. I was thinking for a moment, like Newton under his tree, Archimedes in his bathtub, like some natural laws would still be up in the air or buried under like an immovable rock if people hadn't stopped and traveled a bit into the recesses of their brain and begin to process things. What is even more destructive for us, considering um, like not, not highlighting the importance of what's going on inside our brain is the assumption that silence is useless to life. There's something powerful about thinking. There's something powerful about being still, right? We highlight this all the time about how noisy the world is. And some of us, it's really, really hard, right? To the extroverts in the room, this is something that's brutal for you to actually take a moment and to be still and to be alone. When the mind is denied the privilege of living with itself, even briefly, and is crowded with outside impulses to cope with aloneness. I mean, this is when things get really messed up. Aldous Huxley says this, most of one's life is one prolonged effort to prevent thinking. Most of one's life is one prolonged effort to prevent thinking. I think that there is something that pulls us out of either minimizing the importance of being still with our thoughts and processing, or we think that they're not really, there's nothing really meaningful that happens in our head, right? What really matters is what gets flushed out in real life. And I'm going to unpack that in a moment. But there's so much life that ends up being lost and living. Uh, Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. The thoughts and images in people's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. The thoughts and images in people's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. So here's the problem. When we talk about the goodness of our thought life, as we're going to share in a minute, uh, the connection between the things that we actually do in our lives with what's going on inside our brain, the thoughts is, is that you may be good at controlling your finances, and some of you are so good at controlling where your career is headed. Some of you are amazing manipulators and really good at controlling other people. But, ch but chances are you struggle with controlling your own thought life. How is it that many of us cannot get a grip on keeping our thoughts on things that are good and true and beautiful? It's like we should be able to, like any other limb, like, I'm not going to reach for that last Oreo because I'm watching my weight. I'm watching my weight. <laughs> right? I can, I can actually control that. I can keep that hand away. I can make sure I don't jump off the cliff. I can, I can keep the rest of my body under control. And when it comes to our head, we seem to struggle. We might have expected our thoughts to be the easiest things to control, but there are times when making peace between warring countries seems easier than steering our own thoughts the way they should be steered. Um, and what could add a lot of pressure to this, for those of you who are here and who are followers of Jesus, is that God actually cares a lot about this. A lot. 
Um, the Bible says, uh, it, it sets all these very, very high standards by recommending that in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, that we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. Every thought. Every thought you have, we should take captive and make it obedient to Christ. This is a way of saying, like, everything should be under the lordship of Jesus. Every thought that you have is a thought that's actually had before Christ. So we should be aware of that. So our thoughts are, again, good and true and beautiful. Solomon wrote, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. A wise dude. So a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And Jesus asserts over and over and over again that sin's center lay in the idea itself, not just the act. Right? Like what happens in your head? Like the famous verse for prepubescent men is like, forget about adultery. If you even think or look on a woman in a lustful way, like you, you basically have sinned against her. You want to talk about like hitting someone or murdering somebody? If you even have an angry thought towards someone, you're already on your way. This isn't just Jesus making some really tough law so we feel really guilty. This is just true about the way the world works. Jesus is identifying something absolutely crucial, a, a law, you could even argue, is what happens is our thought life is deeply connected to where things actually go. Your mind will always set itself on something. Your mind will always set itself on something. And so, this is important because if a person thinks of something often enough, they will come to the stage when they cannot stop thinking about it. Their thoughts will be in a groove out of which nothing can pull them out. The more and more, we know this, right? We get into the habit of something. The more and more our thought life gets into a certain rhythm, it is so difficult to pull out. This is such like a classic church example, but it's like the best one I could think of. Right, for all those who, in this room who struggle with pornography, that's like the, the penultimate picture for a lot of us. Right? It's just like the, we get stuck. Think of like a record. You get stuck in the grooves, and it's like a fixed groove or just keeps going round and round. We can't actually pull ourselves out. We get into the pattern of thinking. Right? Some of us, it's just like sequential, ridiculous television. Right? There's like nothing inherently evil about it, but good Lord, you've seen every episode of Lost like four times. You know, like, like we get stuck in like, a, this is the rhythm of distraction. This is the rhythm I get into putting my mind set on things. Right? We always go to the negative, but actually like just, just anything that our mind is set on that is not renewing and beautiful and, and of this list as we're going to see. So in Philippians 4.8, um, finally, brothers what, and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, think about these things. It's interesting that for me, and I don't know if for you, maybe the first time you, you saw this uh, when we like, you know, sent the email out this week, or, or maybe you're familiar with this, or you've been reading through the book, or even just now, to me, the impulse that happens, and I know it happens to many of us, is when we read this, we immediately go to the negative, right? I just even spent time at the beginning of my sermon addressing all the ways that our thought life gets off course, all the ways that we end up putting our mind onto things that are not good, that are not of God, that are not of love. And yet the verse actually isn't negative at all, is it? Is it? The verse is actually super positive. Like Paul is giving us a positive command. It does not focus on what we shouldn't be thinking about. It tells us what we should be thinking about. 
The verse actually is zeroed in on what is amazing and beautiful about the world. The difference in applying this command positively instead of negatively um, has hit home for me recently. Because as I went and preparing for this, I started thinking about, okay, instead of thinking of all the stuff that gets in the way, let me just focus on stuff that's true and stuff that's praiseworthy and stuff that's commendable. So I didn't think about the vacuum. I didn't think about the brokenness. I just started to set my mind on what are the things that are just positive. So my wife and I celebrated our three-year anniversary, uh, and just the timing happened to work out. So as I'm preparing gifts and, and elaborate romantic journeys that I love to do, um, I'm like realizing that, man, the amount of time that it spends to do some of the stuff that I wanted to do for Corey was, was amazing. It was like putting my mind to something that is powerful and life-giving. And so this is like a simple, obvious example. We all go, if you have someone in your life who you would do something for, whether it's a spouse, a child, a grandparent, a good friend, and you begin to actually take time to think, all right, what, I want to just bless them. I want them to just feel incredible. I want to just pour out love and, and joy on them. The more and more you actually do that, the more and more you set your mind to that task, you realize the bandwidth for other things disappear. Uh, I struggled for a long time um, with, with uh, pornography. I've been kind of open about this. And so what was interesting for me is that when I would go to summer camp in high school, right, like it was not just that I had minimal access to it. I didn't even think about wanting to go there. Because my mind began to get stuck in the groove of everything was so zeroed in around Jesus. Everything, in, in, like from like getting up at 6.30 to clean the cabin, to go to the like uh, flag raising, to go to breakfast, to go to chapel, to do these. It was like an arts, creative, music, Jesus camp thing all in one. Uh, not like the creepy Jesus camp documentary. It was a little more positive than that. And, and I, I thought back on that time as I was preparing this because that was a place in life where it was sort of like an agenda was set for me. And the more and more my heart, my head was, was set on things that were good, again, this is like a Captain Obvious moment. It was like, oh, I don't think about the stuff that's really unhealthy for me. Or to go back to the, the marriage analogy, the more and more I'm zeroing in on things that were just a blessing for someone else, right? Or like really commendable, honorable acts I just felt more alive. It wasn't that my brain had been like stuck in all sorts of unhealthy things. It was just like my thought life was not captured by things, again, that were good and that were true and that were beautiful. But this is always the struggle. For those of you who have like some sort of mental addiction, uh, it's always more effective if the addiction is replaced rather than resisted. We look at this verse and we go, I'm going to stand at a distance from it. I'm going to, oh, oh man, I read that. There's so much stuff that's not true and not commendable and not beautiful, not all these things. And so we go, all right, I just need to resist that. I need to resist that instead of actually focusing on that which is good. If we only battle sinful thoughts by trying to shut them off, we will find that our minds cannot handle the vacuum. Paul talks about this somewhere else in the book of Ephesians. He's talking about, look, if there are folks who in your community are wrestling with stealing, like put their hands to something good, to work, to creating something. Why does Paul do this? Because the amount of adrenaline and creativity, the rush that comes from stealing, right? You've got to prepare. You've got to think ahead. 
He's like, if this is your impulse, this is the physical act that stems from some sort of like the things that your mind is set on, covetousness or, or whatever kind of addiction that has kicked in. I mean, there's, there's an adrenaline high if you've ever stolen something. And he's like, look, 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 I'm just going to tell you, stop. Stop with this thing that clearly like you identify with as somebody who steals. Put your hands to something good. Instead of taking, actually give, have your hands give. And he redirects in action. And this is the same sort of thing that's happening with our thought life that Paul's addressing here. And if we should struggle for a moment with the motivation to do this, right, the motivation should not just be, though this is perfectly fine, like fear of the Lord, like God cares what you do with your head. He can see what's happening inside your mind, and he wants them set on good things. If you need, like, proper or a more full reason for reorienting what's going on inside your mind, like, Jesus says he's come to give us life and life to the full. God doesn't command things for the fun of it. It's actually a better way to live. So much of the stuff that swirls around inside our head and that the world around us presses in on our thought life, it's just not as good. Like, as a follower of Jesus, I stand before you and simply assert that. Many of you would do the same thing. Right? There are just things that we actually believe are better. And we actually believe the way of Jesus is the best, most beautiful, incredible way to live. And so when we talk about this first verse here, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, well, let's just start there. Like, what's true? What, what, is, what is true? And we begin with, like, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. It's always only Jesus. We begin here with the, the, the life that is imparted to us with the life that we see lived out. One writer talks about Jesus is displaying, like he's like the ground of our being. He's showing us what it means to be truly human. Paul says he's like the second Adam. There's all this amazing figurative language in Scripture about what Jesus, who Jesus is, and what Jesus is showing us. What Jesus is doing and dying on the cross and, being, and, and, and rising again and setting us free from sin. There's something in all of this, in the person, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that is true. Romans 8, Paul is talking about this life that we can have with Christ, lived in light of the Spirit. And he says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. A mind governed by the Spirit, a mind governed by God, is a life of peace. It is, is true life. Like This isn't just like, a, I used to read passages like this and it meant like a Christian version of peace or like a Christian version of life to the full. Like that's the only version. Like throughout the scriptures, time and time again is affirmed of this is where the party is. It's a life lived with God. So what is true? People no longer ask, at least I notice, is it true? But does it work? Most people don't ask, is something true? They ask, how does it make me feel? Right, that's why a passage like this is kind of hard for many of us. 
Well, that's cool, but it doesn't, I don't feel good when I do that. It's actually going to take some work to reorient my thought life out of mindless whatever into something that's good. Actually, it's great that the pastor's talking about how good it is to like rest with God and to serve well and to eat well with those around you and to go and bless other people and be a force of love in the world and be a greater part of my church. But all that stuff actually takes work to get to a place where that becomes all that it's supposed to become in our life. And that's true. That's true. It's does it work and how does it make me feel, not is something actually true. John 3, 33, we read a little bit about uh, the relationship between Jesus and God and what is truth. He says, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. God is true. You cannot go beyond God. To set our minds on the things and the ways of God is to set your mind on what is the true giver of life. William Barclay adds that many things in this world are deceptive and illusory, promising what they can never perform, offering a spacious peace and happiness which they can never supply. And he says this, a man should always set his thoughts on the things which will not let him down. Somebody should set their thoughts on the things that will not let them down, and we so often do. If your mind, if my mind were constantly set on what won't let us down, on what is truly love, not some fabrication of it, how things would change. I was reading this, um, because I read stuff like this, I don't know why. Uh, Dr. Walter Cavert has this survey about worry. Uh, and indicates that only 8% of the things uh, that people worried about were legitimate matters of concern. So only about 8% of the worry that he was evaluating in people's lives were actually true things to worry about. The other 92% were either imaginary, never happened, or involved matters over which the people had no control of anyway. Is this ringing true at all for anybody? How many spend their lives worrying about stuff that truly doesn't matter at all? He's like, focus on the things that are true. Even in the realm of worry, there's only a handful of things that are actually good to be concerned about. So a few, a few tips for us in light of all of this. If what happens in our mind is incredibly imperative to what happens with our, our hands and our feet, if the things that we set our minds on actually can radically transform the way in which we live our life and the beauty and joy around us, one way would be really simple, and I'm dropping a lot of Sunday school answers on you this morning, I know, but like stay in the word. Like if you are not in the scriptures on a regular basis, please don't pretend like you're gonna know God's will for your life. Please don't pretend like you're really frustrated with your anxiety. Like just don't, like that's okay. This is not like some weird guilt trip. But like don't, Wonder, like, man, where is God? Like, I don't even know what God thinks about this stuff. Oh, man, when was the last time you were in the scripture and praying with, together with people? I don't even know the last time, but that's not the point. No, that's everything. That's how we know anything about God. Right? We need to be people that um, are actually putting time and time again our minds set on the things that are true. And, and those are the things that we read about in the word. 
Psalm 19 promises that God's laws keep us from being double-minded. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, don't go beyond what's written. Like planted firmly in the word of God is where we end up finding the truth. Whatever is true, think about such things. What's true versus what's mindless? What's true versus what only encourages apathy and despondency? What's true versus what like kicks in a, a, a warped view of justice? What's true, right, versus what's really unloving? What's true versus what's just the way in which the flow of life naturally goes? To know those sorts of things, to know truly what is true, is to actually be engaged in the word. It's to actually read about like, the, the, the beautiful acts of love and justice and generosity that we see in time side of scripture, right? Thousands of years of people who have, uh, who these stories have been collected that carry this authority and weight to them, that illustrate just the brilliance of what it looks like when God is working with people. This is how we learn and know more about who Christ is. This is what it means to live according to the spirit versus living according to the flesh. Because for some of you, the Bible then can become its own sort of idol. The Bible can become the only thing we focus on and we're not attentive to the spirit's leading. We're supposed to be people who are aware of the way the spirit is moving. Jesus could only do what he saw the father doing, we're told. And so we go do a bunch of stuff all the time that I don't think God ever called us to do anyway. Are we a group of people who have our minds set, not just on the statutes and truth that we see in the word, but who are attentive to the spirit's leading? This is the greatest truth, is setting our mind on the ultimate, ultimate truth. And so the, one of the most beautiful places we see this lived out as we talk about whatever is true, think about these things. Um, to me, we get so much of the, the center of Christianity, of our faith, right, sits at this table. And I love this um, because we don't get the fullness of God in the communion table. We don't get everything ever about God and all things that are true illustrated with a bread and a cup. Um, but we get a lot. To set our minds on the communion table is to set our minds on an, the ultimate act of love, is to set our minds on the ultimate act of forgiveness, is to set our minds on things that are, um, are beyond what we could do or what we could handle. To set our minds on this um, is to be reminded uh, Man, that we don't have to have it all together. To set our minds on this is to uh, have our anxiety and our stress and our distraction recentered for a moment on that which is weighty and powerful. I would worry in a, in a sermon like this that somehow um, the takeaway would be I should read my Bible more than watching TV. Or I should read my Bible more and pray more instead of uh, whatever the mindless or destructive thing is in your life. And on the one hand, I'm like, all right, if that's all you get, great. But that would probably be an improvement for many of us. Right? Amen? 
could probably all stand to like read or read the scriptures more and pray more, right? Any of you? Yeah. To me, the thing under that, the reason why, the why of this, is because what's true is not just a list of things that will make God happy. It is the way we were hardwired to live. To set our minds on that which is actually true, which God says is true, which is illustrated at the table, like this is what God's like. This is the kind of love that is flowing through us if we would only wake up more and more to it. There's a wonder and a majesty and a beauty that many of us have tasted in particular, this last week for me, I'll share stories some other time, but it's just been a week of overwhelming sense of, oh, man, this is what it is to set my mind on things that are good and true and watching it flow into my fingertips as I do a better job serving and loving and caring for people and honoring and giving glory to God through that. So in light of that, I wanted to, um, wanted to read something to you which if you've been tracking with me, should not feel disconnected, but at the risk that it might. There are moments in life that are more true than others. And there are moments like when we come to the communion table, why we do this almost every week at this church is because when we come to the table, we're actually affirming that there's, there's something mysterious and beautiful about reorienting our life on this kind of forgiveness and this kind of joy and this kind of love. So uh, as you can see, if you can see, I stole this from the Dean Hotel. I'm going to return it. Um, but <laughs> this, is a, this is a journal called N Plus One. It's a very uh, progressive journal. Um, there's absolutely nothing Christian-oriented about it. In fact, very far from that, as I've read other articles in it. Um, and there was an article, what caught my eye as I was sitting there having a cup of coffee, and it said, Clubbing for Christ. I thought, that's worth picking up and reading. <laughs> and as I read through the article, I'm waiting for this writer, Jordan Kisner, um, to basically destroy this, uh, this church that he's kind of embedded him, or she, I can't remember if it's a he or she, that has embedded um, himself in. He's, he's like illustrating what's silly about it. It's like this church in New York that he's kind of like snuck into. And he's sort of like playing the role as like, a, yeah, I just want to like hang out, learn more about Jesus. And, and he's sort of writing undercover inside of this church community. And one thing that they do is they go out to Montauk in the summer uh, and they, they do pop-up church in some of the most trendiest like bars. Um, this is where like, you know, all the celebrities hang out in New York. They go out to Montauk. And so they're you know, hanging out at the beach. It's a very young church. Um, it sounds like they're not quite as good looking as our church, but close. Um, and I mentioned that and that I'm just waiting as he's like, like describing caricatures and, and he's like giving all these little like jabs. And I'm waiting, if you've ever read an article like this, you're like waiting for him to just be like, and here's why Christians are ridiculous, right? He makes a joke about like, this is cool fundamentalism. And all this stuff. So I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm going to continue to read. It was a compelling article. I'm, like, waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for, like, my, my people, my tribe to be really misunderstood. 
And then this happens in the article. Uh, they're, they're in this pop-up church now in this bar in Montauk. The room was still. Our eyes were fixed on Parker. Parker's the pastor. Who seemed to be radiating both vulnerability and ease. As though these words were at once the most intimate and most self-evident he'd ever spoken. Imagine the way God loves you, he told us. You are completely and totally known. He sees the depths of your heart and your silliest foibles and your most monstrous thoughts and your most generous acts. And he takes it all and he delights in you. And he loves you totally and finally. Right then, something happened that I wasn't expecting. Which is that I remembered for a moment what it feels like to be a Christian or what it felt like for me. There's a membrane between imagining God's love as a thought experiment and embracing it as absolute reality. And if you slip across it, the entire known universe breaks open and then reorders itself to be more whole and beautiful than you thought was possible. I had forgotten. It's a tragedy you can't truly explain what it feels like the safety and wonder and rest and joy and shattering humility and crazy peace. Because when you feel it all, all you want is for everyone else to feel it too. It's like you've been let in on the most magnificent secret and all you want is to bring everyone else along. Because if everyone knew the secret, it could solve every problem in the world. This is what Christians call in a terrific understatement, the good news. This is also called grace. Sitting in that converted bar, I got maybe seven seconds of a vivid memory of grace, and the echo alone was enough to remember why people who know the good news do wild things to spread it. They're filled up with a love so great it demands to be given away. When the world clicked back into its familiar alignment, the bar actually looked different. The light was coming in softer, and the room glowed hopeful and clean. Parker was talking about miracles or something. As soon as the sermon ended, ended Jesse and the other girls dumped the untouched waters in, garage, in garbage bins and pecked at their iPhones. Everyone decided on burritos for lunch. The bar resolved slowly back into a bar. Before long, the Christians climbed back into their enormous truck and headed toward the coast. That moment. true. And for this writer, that moment of his mind being set on that which is true. I love the picture of like just slipped from the experiment of thinking of God's love into the absolute reality. And it was like the room was reordered. This is what we believe happens in some mysterious way when we're open to what God does through communion, why we gather together on a Sunday morning for church. Why we say things like, get in the word more and read your Bible more and like pray more. Not because we're interested in you following a bunch of laws because we actually think it's the most beautiful and incredible thing ever. If you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, if you have a thousand questions but there's something tugging in your heart, if you're like, I've got more doubts than you know what to do with Andrew, but you're just like, man, if that were absolutely true, then I would want to take that step of faith and say, yeah, I, I'm interested in following Jesus then I would encourage you um, today to just come and, and, and talk with me in the prayer area or some of the other people here to come up after the service and chat.
And for the rest of us, as we come to the communion table, um, let this be a, a place where maybe there are some things that we need to confess, some things we need to let go of, because our thought life has been just focused on things that aren't good and beautiful and true. And may our hearts, as we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, might be reminded of a God who loves us so much that he broke himself open and poured himself out in an act of love for the healing and forgiveness of everyone, of everyone. And that we, as a community, when we set our minds on that which is true, would break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the healing of our city and of our world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ways that um, you move through risque journals written by non-Christian writers to touch the hearts of your people. Thank you for the ways that you pursue us time and time again. Thank you that you have made clear what is true. Thank you that we don't need to speculate. Thank you, Lord, that we don't need to question. Like what, like, and wonder what love really looks like. That we don't have to question or wonder. What holds this world together. And so I pray for those uh, who have never said yes to Jesus, who've never said, I would like to trust Jesus. I would like to begin to follow, follow Jesus, Lord, that they would just right now just say yes. Lord, I pray for our church, for the amazing people in this room who are just blow my mind day after day. Lord, that we would be people who would be growing in the power of your spirit, growing in the power and the strength of your spirit, to have our minds just pulled up out of the grooves that are unhealthy and set on the life that you have for us. So we pray against whatever it is, the thing that we know right now that's in the front of our head that we know we need to just replace the habits that need to form the time carved out in our calendar. I pray that we would be people of action, that we would do this. And schedule that time into our calendars, that we would remove the temptations that lock our mind into things that are just useless. And I pray over this series, we start talking about what's honorable and what's praiseworthy and what's excellent. Lord, that this would be life-giving. This, we wouldn't just generate lists of all the things that we suck at in our heads. Lord, that we would just be filled more and more with awe and wonder of the life that you have for us, of the praiseworthy things and the honorable and commendable and true things that you have, Lord, for your people. So in your name, Lord, we sing. We pray, amen.